Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. I wanted to focus on a part of this Parsha that I've never really focused on before. The part of this Parsha that you all know very well is the what we call Korach's rebellion and that he gets swallowed up by the ground. And, and that is a very impressive and very important part of the Parsha. There is no doubt. But one piece of this Parsha really stood out to me. And I feel like we've, I made this joke to Rabbi Klickfeld yesterday. I feel like we've really been talking about Korach for like three weeks at this point because we talked about it at the gala. Every gala speaker talked about Korach. And then all week we also talked about Korach. And so by the time I got to today, I was really, I'm, I'm kind of done with Korach. So this part of Korach was just an, an aspect of the Parsha that I think we just gloss over because it's not the most dramatic piece of it. So before we get to that part of the Parsha, I want to, I want to actually bring us back to a different part in our Torah. Um, and if you don't have the sheet in front of you, if you're on Zoom or on live stream, I'm going to tell you where these pieces are found and you can look them up in a chumash or just listen to my voice. But there's a Midrash that, again, you've probably all heard of, but maybe not connected it to this piece of Korach, which would make sense because it has nothing to do with Korach, that is found from a part of of Exodus in Shemot, uh, chapter 30, verse 17 through 20. And it says here, Adonai spoke to Moses saying, make a laver of copper and a stand of copper for it for washing and place it between the tent of meeting and the altar, put water in it and let Aaron and his sons wash their hands and feet. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water that they may not die. Or when they approach the altar to serve, to turn into smoke an offering by fire to God. It then says later on, as part of this same uh, narrative, so to speak, in chapter 38 of Exodus, verse 8, he made the laver of copper and its stand of copper from the mirrors of the women who performed tasks at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Just by a show of hands, who who's heard this line and therefore the Midrash that follows before? Okay, wonderful. Sandy Fields, you also have because your daughter was the one who taught it to me. So I promise you've heard it. Um, so here is the Rashi on this, on, on this, uh, verse here, chapter 38, verse eight, which again becomes a very famous midrash, uh, specifically when, when understanding the Israelite women's role in, in post exodus and, uh, and tabernacle tent of meeting, uh, into the promised land culture. The Israelite women possessed mirrors of copper, which they used to look when they adorned themselves, right? Just like we do today. You stand in front of a mirror and you put on your makeup or your clothes or your necklace or whatever. <laughs> the fact that I can't think of things makes it sound like I don't do this. I also do this. Um, but we use mirrors just like the women did back in those days to make sure they know what they look like and when they're adorning themselves. Even these, they did not hesitate to bring as a contribution towards the tabernacle. Now, you might think to yourself, why bring a mirror? Right? If you're going to bring anything out of your home to give as a gift for the tabernacle, why would it be a mirror? Doesn't that seem a little bit vain, but also maybe unimportant, right? You don't need, you don't come to the tabernacle to see yourself. So why need a mirror? 
Moses was about to reject them, the mirrors, since they were made to pander to their vanity. But the Holy One said to Moses, accept them. These are dearer to me than all other contributions, because through them, the women reared those huge hosts in Egypt. Okay, what does that mean? For when their husbands were tired through their crushing labor, they used to bring them food and drink and induce them to eat. Then they would take the mirrors and each gaze at herself in her mirror together with her husband, saying endearingly to him, see, I am handsomer than you, kind of teasing one another. Thus, they awakened their partner's affection and subsequently became the mothers of many children. And it was for this reason that the laver was made of them, the mirrors, because it served the purpose of promoting peace between a partner and their partner. Okay, so what we're talking about here is a piece of the tabernacle that was brought that you might not think would be brought because why? Why have a mirror in the tabernacle? This midrash that Rashi is explaining as a commentary seems to make it into a very important part of the of the history of the people because they would come to the tabernacle. They would coax their their husbands in this particular case, though I the reason I'm using partner is because I think that this can be done for for anybody and any type of relationship. They brought their partner away from the work they were doing and said, why don't we spend some time together? And what that resulted in, Rashi is saying, is many children, right? That the, that the people were able to then become a large nation because the women took them away from their work and had children with them. So the mirrors were actually extremely important so that the community could grow and then the tabernacle could be used, right? That's the other reason this midrash works is because if it weren't for the children or for many generations, then what's the tabernacle for? Why bring people into the tabernacle at all? So before I move on, I, I would love to know if you can already think of a connection and maybe you cheated and that's okay. But uh, what the connection between this piece from Shmot might be to the story of Korach. Does anybody have any thoughts? And if you cheated, you can just say, I cheated and I know. You a little bit cheated. Okay. What? Okay, great. Good things and not good things. That's what Jackie said. It made more sense in her head, she said. Um, well, tell me a little bit more. Maybe I'll help you make it make more sense. Right. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Okay, great. That actually, that makes a lot of sense. And yes, that is connected to what we're going to see in a second. So what Jackie said was hard labor could equal bad thing or, could, or just challenging thing. And therefore the story of Korah could equal bad behavior, but something good came out of it. Is that kind of what you're saying? Great. Was there a hand over here? No. Yeah, Denise, so good to see you. Okay, great. Great. I'm going to keep repeating for you, by the way, just so they can hear you. So keep talking. Mm. Beautiful. So what Denise, I'm going to paraphrase, but what Denise said was that that part of the reason that the redemption happened for our people was in the in honor of these women who even thought to have a relationship with their husbands to create that community that came after them in this in the next generation. Beautiful. It is. She wants everyone to know that it is not her saying it, though I heard it from her mouth. But yes, the rabbis do say that. Anyone else? Any other thoughts? Connections? Yeah, Larry. Is in the Haggadah. Yes. 
Right. So Larry's reminding us of this piece, this, this idea of what the women were doing is also mentioned in our Haggadah uh, for Pesach. Beautiful. Leah, was that a hand? Okay. <laughs> it could have been. You have a beautiful Torah to share. Um, okay. So l- I'm going to reveal how I think it's connected. So if you turn to the second page or if you turn to a Chumash, we're in Numbers chapter 16. Ver- starting at verse six, though, we're going to go through quite a bit of, of the Parsha here. And similar to, to what Jackie said and the Midrash that Denise shared, we're going to see that there was this element of something that was challenging that then provided something beautiful. It's a little bit harder for us to recognize that in the story of Korach, because as I started off by saying, we focus on the really challenging part of the Korach story and how... Uh, really insensitive it was that Korach thought to go up against Moshe and Aaron. By the way, we believe them to actually have been cousins. So, which everyone was cousins, but they they were, they were cousins and to go up against your family. Also, we could have a whole other converse conversation about that and how much, much more hurtful it is. If you go up up against your family than other people in, uh, in your community. So, Number Bamibar, uh, chapter 16, verse 6. I'm going to just share snippets. So it's not going to all be one right after the other. But this is verses 6 through 7. Do this, Zot Asu, this you shall do. You, Korach, and all your band, take fire pans. Just remember, we're going to be talking about fire pans. Okay, so the thing that you would put incense in or collect the ashes of the incense in. And tomorrow, put fire in them and lay incense on them before God. Then the person who the Lord chooses, he shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. So if you look back in the, in the story, this is the point where Moshe, where Sorry, where Korah has gone up to Moshe and Aaron and said, what are you doing? I'm going to go up against you. Moshe says then what, what just happened, what I just read. Then we're going to jump now uh, about 10 verses to verse 17. Each of you take his fire pan and lay incense on it. And each of you bring his fire pan before the Lord, 250 fire pans. You and Aaron also bring your fire pans. Each of them took his fire pan, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and took his place at the entrance of the tent of meeting, as did Moshe and Aaron. Now, chapter 17, verse 2 says, order El Azar, son of Aharon, the priest, to remove the fire pans, for they have become sacred. They've become sacred. All of a sudden, this thing that's being used that we're going to see in a moment is not necessarily for sacred use, similar to Aaron's sons who die because of an unknown fire. So too, that's happening to Korach and his people. From among the charred remains and scatter the coals abroad. Rashi says it is the fire pans that have become sacred. They had turned them into service vessels, meaning they could no longer be used for any other purpose. Remember that when we go to the next piece. We're still in chapter 17, just the next verse, verse three. Remove the fire pans of those who have sinned at the cost of their lives and let them be made into hammered sheets as plating for the altar. So this is the part that made me think of the mirrors Because again, here is this moment where the mirrors might have been seen back in Shemot, not necessarily as something bad, but definitely something taking away from what the tabernacle was for. 
And in this case, something that was seen as profane is now being made into holy and not only being made into holy, but being put as a, hi Jennifer Lowe, being put as kind of a, 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 a plating. I don't know what other word to use. A, um, covering, building. Thank you. All of those words. Architectural design for the tent of meeting. For once, I'm now back in the Torah. For once they have been used for offering to the Lord, they have become sacred and let them serve as a warning to the people of Israel. Remember, because they were used for something not good. Now they are going to be on the tent of meeting as a as a reminder for what had happened. Eleazar, the priest, took the copper fire pans, which had been used for offering by those who died in the fire, and they were hammered into plating for the altar. As God had ordered him through Moshe, it was to be a reminder to the Israelites so that no outsider, one not of Aaron's offspring, should presume to offer incense before the Lord and suffer the fate of Korah, and his band. Whenever I read band, I assume that they were all, you know, like minstrels with, with guitars. But what we mean is Korach and his people. <laughs> okay. So that's what happens when your father's a musician. What, what's, what is the connection here? What are we seeing is happening here with these copper fire pans? Yeah, Carl. Right. Beautiful. So Rabbi Shapiro and I were actually talking about this, this particular, um, connection. And he said exactly that same thing, that you can take something that is seen as not good, or maybe reminds you of something that was not favorable. And then you turn it into something that actually is favorable or has a positive reminder for you, or somehow you make it into something positive. Nick, did you have your hand up? No. Any other thoughts? Yes. Ah, very good. Beautiful. So what Carl said was that that actually takes some hammering, right? I had not picked up on that as a, as the, the artistry here, but yes, it takes somehow changing it. It can't just be this thing reminds us or is something profane. And now we're going to make it holy. You have to change it in some way to make it holy. I hadn't thought of this until right this second. It's almost like when you, when you fix a Torah. That if you are fixing a Torah, has anybody ever seen a sofa fix a, a letter in a Torah? Yeah, okay. So when the, and we've done it with some of the Torahs that I'm staring at right now. When there is a letter in the Torah that is somehow pasul, somehow has been made, now has made the entire Torah, in fact, unreadable. It's broken. It's not the right letter, whatever the case may be. The software goes in, scrapes it out, and then rewrites it. But you can often tell where that change has been made. Because sometimes it's not the same software or it's definitely not the same ink because it's years later. And so it's a different kind of hammering, but you are turning something that has now been unusable into something beautiful and usable just with a very small change. That entire Torah now can be can be read and can be used. Stevie. Just to add to that, to point out the wordplay uh, here. Yeah. Right. That's a Asian uh, holiday issue. Great. Right. That if just things are slightly, it's saying Ashzara, mm. right? The, the foreign fire that mm-hmm. got not being killed, right? Right. So you're scattering the coals, is what it means. Mm-hmm. Scatter the coals because these fire pans have become sacred, but it's saying that you plucked out some holiness from 
Mm. Beautiful. So Stevie did a wonderful wordplay on the Hebrew at the end here. Yeah. And what he was saying is that there you are, you can, I'm not going to do it as well as you just did, that you can take what might originally sound as Eish Zara, which is what killed Nadav and Avihu, but you realize that you're actually, he used the word plucking, which I really liked, plucking something out of it to notice its sanctity, to notice that which is Kadosh. Did I miss anything that was really important in what you said? Okay. You said it much more beautifully. Yeah. Rabbi Chorney. Mm, assuming best intentions. Mm-hmm. 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 Beautiful. So I would go as far as to say is those best intentions that are ingrained in their action, even though we might see it as something that is we, the people who do not believe in what they're, what they're acting out to do under Korach's uh, reign that maybe that is what then comes out of those fire pans to be the kadosh. Maybe now all of a sudden we can see that those good intentions that we couldn't see before because of the way that they were acting that we didn't understand because we were on the opposite side or we did not agree with them. And therefore that kadusha, that holiness is what gets to come out when they're hammered together to be put onto the tent of meeting. Tova. Mm. Beautiful. Beautiful. That there needs to be that partnership between us, us doing that as well as, as a community member for that closeness to God, as well as the connection that we then have when we go into that tent of meeting and surrounded by that holiness for God. Yes, Nick, and then we'll go to our final commentary. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Beautiful. Yeah. Hmm. So Nick was mentioning that the metals uh, could have, we don't know where they came from, that they were hard to come by, and that it's possible that those were the metals that were also used as part of the rebellion as weapons. And so what he, what he was claiming, drashing on really, was that maybe these metals were hammered into something that could be holy and that could be adorned to the tent of meeting so that we did remember that which was happening. I might have added that. Um, <laughs> so that we could remember that which was happening, but also so that instead of weaponry being that which reminded us of what had happened to our people, really by our people, that it was something that was then bringing holiness, that was bringing some adornment, that was bringing beauty. Uh, and so too, I think if you look at the Midrash and you see it as, uh, and Nick did not say this, these are now my words, but if you think about the Midrash as something that could have been seen as just vanity, then that too could have been seen as a type of weapon, right? That would have brought the men away from their, their responsibility, their avodah for, towards God and towards the tabernacle. And yet God was the one who said, no, look at this beauty because it's bringing you all together. Okay. We're going to look at one final commentary. I know I, I gave you many more as per usual than we're going to get to. Um, but I want to read, I might read too. Okay. I might, I might read too. Um, thank you. Jackie just reminded me I'm in charge. <laughs> um, uh, okay. So 
if you go back to the first page um, of your source sheet, this is from Brachot 54a. And this actually, this piece of Brachot has nothing to do with either the Midrash nor this piece from Korach. It doesn't, it doesn't comment um, on either of those two pieces, but it does talk about, well, I'll read it. The Mishnah articulates a general principle. One is obligated to recite a blessing before blessing for the bad that befalls him, just as he recites a blessing for the good that befalls him. As it is stated, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might that comes from our Ve'ahavta. The Mishnah explains this verse as follows. With all your heart means with your two inclinations with your good inclination and your evil inclination, your Yetzer Hara and your Yetzer Hatov, both of which must be subjugated to the love of God. With all your soul means even if God takes your soul, and with all your might means with all your money, as money is referred to in the Bible as might. I'm going to set that one aside for a second. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Alternatively, it may be explained that with all your might means with every measure that God gives to you or or measures out for you, whether it is good or troublesome, you should thank God. The reason I brought this is because I believe inherent in both of these stories is the good inclination and the bad inclination, very much so like what Rabbi Chorney said, which was that it might have been the inclination of the people to do something good, and it just came across to us as bad or not good. And yet, both are needed when we say with all of ourselves. And therefore, I think for the tabernacle, for a whole person to come into it, there need to be reminders of that, which is of the quote, evil inclination or bad side of things and the good inclination and the wonderful sides of things. I'm going to, the last thing I'm going to read is from Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook. And he taught that the holiness of the fire pans symbolizes the necessary role played by skeptics and agnostics in keeping religion honest and healthy. Coming from Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook. Challenges to tradition, he taught, are necessary. Plating the altar with the fire pans of the rebels is meant to remind us of the legitimacy, indeed the potential holiness, of the impulse within each of us to rebel against the stagnation and complacency that can infect religion. (laughs) Larry liked that. (laughs) I hope that we are each able to walk into our sanctuaries, not just this Gansberg sanctuary, but any place that we make into a sanctuary, and that we're able to recognize how we bring all of ourselves, that which is potentially something that, that is not good from our past that makes us stronger, or something that allows us to be the whole person who we are with both that Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Hatov. Because as God instructed us, we needed to build our sanctuaries with both of those elements literally on the outside, welcoming us into those sanctuaries. And just as Abraham Isaac Cook said, I think that instead of walking away from those challenges and for the things that might make us shy away from problems or worry that we have when we walk into our sanctuaries, that instead we go towards them and instead we remember them and instead we try to allow them to make us grow and to make us a holier people. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. 
For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.